Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hello, Kimberly Brown, first of all, how are you? Russell, I'm well, thank you. I am glad to meet you, I'm glad to be here. Brilliant, and where in the world are you today? I'm in New York City, and you might hear a bit of New York City as we talk. It's a little loud out here today. Great. Well, let let the open the window. I'm a big fan of New York City. So, are you in are you in Manhattan itself, or um... I am not. I am in Queens. Oh right! Oh, fantastic! I'm trying to think of all the programs now set in Queens. There's so many television programs around that area. Oh, there? that's true. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Very good. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. It has to be said. Where are you located, Russell? Your West Coast. Uh, yeah, you'd see, judging by my background, you're looking at my background and think I'm in Hawaii, but I'm actually in the northeast of England, which is oh very my different. Goodness. Oh, I'm embarrassed. I didn't know that, Russell. That's okay. I listened to the podcast, but didn't know where you were. Okay, yeah. very different. Yeah. I'm flattered you think I sound like a Hawaiian, <laughs> but I can do that. I can do the, I can do the thing. <laughs> so anyway, tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. Well, I am a meditation teacher and now I'm an author. Um, I'm a meditation teacher through the Buddhist tradition. And what I really teach and focus on is how we can uh, use our mindfulness and our ability to concentrate and work with our minds in a way that we can develop compassion for ourselves and each other. And I teach this because it's what I practice. I came to uh, these practices after um, a lot of struggles with panic attacks and other, you know, just anxiety, things that really troubled me. And I did have lots of therapy and that was super helpful. And then I found meditation and that was uh, really a compliment to the earlier work. So um, now that's what I do. I teach, I teach group classes and I also teach uh, one-on-ones and I've written a a couple of books. Yeah. Okay. Now you you mentioned from from the Buddhist tradition very early on in that sort of statement. So um, I wonder if you could unpack for our listeners the difference between the Buddhist tradition of meditation and the and the I suppose the non-Buddhist variety. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I say it in part because it's um, I like to honor my training. You know, I've been uh, I've had a lot of wonderful teachers and experiences in the Buddhist tradition, and you know the difference between just meditation and practicing in the Buddhist um, path 
is that in the Buddhist path, there's also teachings that go along with the meditation practices. And those teachings are um, simply encouragements to understand reality, understand that all of us will get older and get sick and die, understand that you know, we're dynamic entities and that we have struggles and that everything's impermanent. And this emphasis on seeing reality can be so useful, at least it has been to me and many of us, in um, alleviating the suffering that comes from wanting things to be different than they are. That's uh, interesting. I mean, we, we've all heard this sort of idea that Buddhism's from the East and such like, and obviously the Buddha himself is... Um kind of spiritual practice but the way you described it sounds and i may have just misread this but it sounds quite stoic in the way that you just described it there that sense of things will happen one day at a time we will die let's make on the most of the time we had it, it, it's it the way you described it, it sounds very similar to it is, is that an unfair characterization it is not russell i don't know so much about the stoics but many, many people say that there are, are deep similarities between the, the Buddhist view and, be, and the Stoic view. I think one of the distinctions is that Buddhism doesn't suggest that, well, this, you know, um, we're going to get older, we're going to get sick, we're going to die. That's, you know, that's terrible. We have to suck it up. Buddhism says, well, that's okay. We can still, once we know that and understand it, we can live a very happy life with less resistance toward uh, things we don't want. Yes. And I think, well, I'm interested to hear your view. I think they they perhaps approach the idea of grief and loss slightly differently to a more traditional westernized view where we basically we never talk about it uh, it's slightly embarrassing it almost as if that if we if we talk about it it might it might happen earlier or um people might suddenly start inexplicably you know foaming at the mouth or crying uncontrollably and it sounds to me like buddhism sort of integrates the 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 passing on or whatever that phrase might be in a more obvious way so people are less ashamed to talk about it perhaps Yes, I think so, Russell. A Buddhist, you know, a Buddhist nun or a monk, every day they, you know, in the morning wake up and say, I am of the nature to die. I am of the nature to change. You know? um, not because it's depressing, but because to remind ourselves that life is very brief and that we can use our words and our actions to benefit ourselves and each other. And as you say, you know, you, I'm, I'm assuming it's similar in England, but certainly in the US, we have such a struggle just even knowing how to grieve. And as you say, to talk about death is somehow, um, there's a superstition about it, you know, and that leaves people that are grieving a loss of a death, but also just a divorce or losing your job, that it leaves us with little tools to, you know, develop resilience in ourselves in, in the face of that change. Yeah, because it's important to sort of recognize it's a natural part of our existence, isn't it? To, to I mean, if we, if we avoid the deeply spiritual and some, some of the more interesting religious practices, it is a natural part of our cycle, isn't it? So, um, what what is the what is the Buddhist view of um, what happens after death? I I, only, I genuinely don't know, which is why I'm asking the question. 
Well, you know, that's an interesting question because there are many different Buddhist traditions. So some of them, like the Tibetan tradition, really emphasize the idea of reincarnation and that you and I have had many incarnations and we've been different animals and insects and people and we will again. And then others, the Japanese Zen tradition, for example, they they don't have an answer for it. You know, they they that it's not really about that. You know, the early Buddhist teachings, the Buddha um, came from a time and a place that believed in, in reincarnation, although he did not really emphasize it. His emphasis was on living, you know, right now. Yes. Yes. I've always been intrigued at the idea of death as as being frightened to talk about. It seems to be to avoid a natural motivator. In fact, I remember going in some course or other, someone saying to me, um, I wish we could. I wish we knew the date we would die, and and then and I said, well, why? He said, well, imagine everything we could do if we knew the date we'd die. And I said, well, why don't you just do that anyway? Because actually, surely the practice of dying should be different from the practice of living. And also, why why do we why do we have a fantastic you know celebration um, after we've died that we don't get to go to? Why don't we have living funerals? I mean, why don't we do those things? And I just think that somehow we're we're very squeamish about death, and and rightly so. I mean, grief is a horrible experience. I've been through it. You have, I'm sure. And it's something that we shouldn't necessarily um, wish for, but it is something that we need to face up to, isn't it? Yes, that's exactly it, Russell. We wouldn't wish suffering and loss on anyone. And yet that is the nature of life. It's neither good nor bad. It is just the nature of being human. And to be able to, like you said, to really know that, well, then you, you might choose to live your life a little differently, realizing how precious it is, realize what's really important to you. So, so um, if there were some Buddhist principles you could introduce us to, which would help us understand our sort of our approach to resilience or our, our path in life, I'd be very interested to know what what, you, what would be useful for us to know. Yeah, you know, um, I think one thing that's important, and I I was interested to be on your show because of its name, is the and I and I believe Russell, you have mentioned in your other podcast that you have an interest in psychological safety. And in, a, in the Buddhist view, we have a similar idea. There is an idea that each of us can become reliable supports for ourselves, that mm. most of us learn that the outside world, you know, getting what we want or um, depending on someone else, um, managing and controlling everything that happens outside, that somehow we can create a situation where we're going to be safe. And you could do that to a certain degree, but no, you're still going to get older, you're still going to lose, you might lose the job, you might get divorced, you know. So the idea in Buddhism is to use the tools, the practices of meditation, of compassion, of wisdom, to create a refuge in your own self, to start to develop a way to um, have resilience, to have tools, um, so that we are trying all the time to control other people, control circumstances, almost all of which aren't in our control. Yeah. Now, it's interesting way that you described that there. Um, so you talked about meditation, which I, sus- I understand is a process. You've talked about compassion, which again is a process. And you've talked about wisdom, which seems to be like an output. So, but I mean, I'm interested to think that wisdom might be a process as well, that you can actually practice and become more meditative, compassionate and wise. Is, is, that, is that the case? 
Beautiful, yes, and that is um, that's the tradition, you know, to to develop our minds so that we have uh, the ability to not get lost and be caught in thought all the time, and also developing this compassion to ourselves and each other, and. The three of them, the wisdom, is in some ways an output of the prior two, but you can also cultivate wisdom. And from a Buddhist view, wisdom is, it's not just knowledge, it's um, being able to ascertain what is happening at each moment and meet it with an appropriate response, you know, to, with the right, right is the wrong word, but with a beneficial action, whether it's beneficial words or choosing not to say anything. But wisdom is being able to meet the moment and you to be able to meet the moment, you need those other skills. Yeah, it's, and, and I for me, that's what resilience is. Resilience is a process that allows you to bounce forward and not to bounce back. It's the idea that every time there's a setback in life, that an inherent part of the resilience process is, is learning. And I and I just wonder whether wisdom is something we can all uh, um, we can attribute to older people, but it doesn't have to be so, does it? There are, I've met I've met lots of people who are older and not very wise, and some very wise youngsters. Um, so, if we were to develop wis- wisdom, how would we go about doing it? Sorry, because we've talked about meditation awful lot, but this is quite interesting. So I'm not, I'm not talked to anybody about the wisdom side of it before. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, I think you're exactly right, Russell. We have a myth that older people are wise. I mean, look at the world. Most countries are run by older people and it's not going so great. So that's definitely not true. Um, So the easiest way to develop wisdom, the beginnings of wisdom, is um, simply to start to learn mindfulness. I know that sounds so easy and everybody, at least in the U.S., talks about mindfulness all the time. Mm -hmm. But to be able to be present with what is arising in your senses and in your thoughts. You if you can practice this for just for a short time, for a month or two, you will start to very clearly see the truth of life. Everything's impermanent. Right. You sit and you hear a sound. Well, that sound is gone. An emotion comes up. That goes away too. Everything's constantly changing. So you see that wisdom of impermanence. You start to see the wisdom of your own um, neediness and greed and dislike and delusions. You know, you start to see that, and that's another type of wisdom to see through your the biases of the mind. Mm-hmm. And then um, finally, you start to see that who you are, and I'm putting that in quotes, who you are is um, is dynamic and changing. You know, we have idea of like, oh, Kim is like this. I could put a little Kim in a jar, but there's no such thing. I am Kim constantly receiving information from my environment and um, constantly creating ideas and thoughts. And in each moment, this is ever changing. And because of this, then we have the possibility of uh, lessening our suffering, of walking through the world in a way that's more beneficial to ourselves and each other. Mm. Interesting, because we often talk about trauma as being a, a state of stuckness, don't we? We we don't grow, we don't become comfortable with our past. We we get defined by an event that's happened to us a long time ago. So. 
is part of that learning to so the trouble mindfulness is such a hack term these days and i really sort of rebelling against yes. it but but but, I the hear point, you. but the point being that it's about learning to let go of the past isn't it or it's learning to integrate the past or deal with the past or accept the past whatever trendy word it is this week um but that that's the challenge isn't it it's the the power of now is knowing that you if something horrible happened to you years ago and i know you've had a troubled past as i have myself but it's learning to integrate that and realize that you couldn't be the person today without that past you would be a different person not not necessarily a and my quotes are right now doing not necessarily a better person just different just so different. how does how does buddhism 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 help us let go of that path is that the well, thing about the river stepping in the river twice and all that sort of stuff yes and those metaphors can help but what you know in practice what you it's what you said it's le- learning to not reify our stories you know, I, I, like you said, I have, I came from a very difficult past and did some, a lot of trauma work. And part of what I had to learn in those experiences was that I had, my mind and my body had held on to something, not intentionally, I couldn't blame myself, but that's what I was doing, clinging to something. And Buddhism opens the possibility of uh, learning to you know, we say let go, but that's such an easy thing. But learning to allow, learning to not hold so tightly, learning to uh, recognize a story for a story. And even just in doing so, the story has less charge and power. So you're sort of, you're almost, um, it's like the idea of standing one step removed from your emotions. I am experiencing anxiety rather than I am anxious. That sort of idea. This thing happened to me. I am not that thing. Yes, perfect. I mean, in the very early Buddhist um, teachings, there's something called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. And in it, there are steps to practice this wisely. And the third step is where you notice what's arising in yourself. And just as you said, you frame it as anger is arising in me. Happiness is arising in me. Sadness is arising in me. It is not, I am angry. I am sad. It is a recognition of the comings and goings that are coming together. And this is important, not randomly, but because of causes and conditions in your past. That's what's creating everything that's arising right now. So there's less of an emphasis on blame or like finding out why, which I think is valid and important, but it's, it's also valid and important just to be with it. And knowing that it's here, it's arising. I didn't put it here, and I it's mine now. Mm, interesting. No, it's fascinating. Sorry, I, I know we could go and talk about this for another hour, and I'm being respectful to your time, so I'm not going to do that. But um, so, so you've written a book which is about, and the reason, sorry, let me before we go there. The reason I wanted to talk about that is because I don't because I think Mr. Buddhism gets linked almost to a, a religious practice rather than a spiritual practice from time to time. And I think there, and sometimes it creates a resistance for people to understand its ideas. I, I don't know what you think about that. Yes, it's very true. And, and Buddhism's, you know, it's a, it's a great world religion and it is um, practiced and studied in different ways, much the same as Christianity is. In the West, especially in, excuse me, in the U.S., in England, in Europe, um, many of the 
Buddhist teachers who are American or English who learned from the East brought it here and have developed it in a way that it is less, uh, it has less ritual and less religiosity. Mm. And the reason that we've done that is because the tools are very useful. You don't have to believe in the Buddha. You don't have to believe in anything at all, actually. Just learning to practice these tools, which, you know, can really help your life. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, so you've written the book, which is um, uh, called Navigating Grief and Loss, if that's correct. And um, it's pretty obvious what it um, it's about, navigating grief and loss is what we talked about. So um, what, what was the motivation behind it? I wrote the book because um, I had had some significant losses. Um, one was someone very dear to me, and it was it was just very hard. It was very painful. I felt like someone just came and knocked me over, you know. And my father died. He was old. It was not uh, tragic, but it was hard. And I wrote the book because uh, many of the practices I learned in my training were very supportive to me and really helped me not only with the loss, but, you know, leading up to the loss, dealing with, you know, serious illness of people. And, um, and I really wanted to share them with other people because the book is written in a very secular way. doesn't matter. You can be Catholic and use these tools. And I hope that they are a benefit of others to others when they're going through something so hard. Is it a different starting point from, say, the Kubler-Ross idea of the the emotional curve? Um, because, because that's sort of a paradigm that's taken hold. So are you starting from a totally different place and using different tools? Yes. I mean, I would say that one of the things that I experienced in my grief and others that I spoke with is that it doesn't always look like the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages, or it might, you know, you might be in, in denial and then in acceptance, and then you're back in denial. Um, So it's these, the practices in the book are to cultivate compassion for whatever is arising right now and giving yourself space to, um, to go through the process. It might not be, um, what you think it's going to be, it might take longer, it might take shorter, um, but to, well, however it is to be able to meet it. And I also really want people to know, and whoever's listening here, who's going through grief to know that you, you will get through this, that you have the skills, that you have all the qualities you need to meet yourself and uh, your struggles. Mm. But, but, but the interesting thing about um, grief and again, I'd be interested to know if your Buddhist view is different on this, is that it's not about, it's funny, but it's not about getting through it, isn't it? It's about accepting it because grief changes and morphs yeah. and adapts. And and actually grief can be cumulative. So you can have, and you can have echoes of grief through your life as well, can't you? So something can happen that can trigger a response. And and that could be linked back to a PTSD sort of, you know, something horrific in your life. But it could also be the grief that comes from losing a, a great friend or the loss of a great memory or something along those lines. So we often characterize grief as being one thing, but I think it's an immensely complex sub- subject. Yes, I think so, too. And we also sort of see it as something negative, something to like, I want to get through it. 
Well, you know what? I had a friend who died five years ago, and I hope I still am thinking of her as long as I live. And sometimes yeah. that is charged with sadness. That's okay. Why wouldn't it be? I lost someone I love. Yeah. And you would, would love them to be there, but they're not. I mean, I was, yeah. I moved house recently, and you come across, you know, uh, boxes of programs or things with your parents in, if your parents have passed away and such like. And, and there's a pleasure in the sadness in a funny sort of way. Yes, I think so too, Russell. And but I I'm, feel that it's certain, it's at least for me, it, it's also an honor. You know, I thought to myself when I was in the midst of a lot, like very painful grief soon after my friend died. And I thought, well, if I could take a pill and get rid of it, I wouldn't. Because how terrible for to have such a great loss and feel nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. And it, it does make you wonder, I mean, the, the vast majority of, um, grief experiences that can tend to be negative are really a lot about guilt, aren't they? It's this idea that we we the things we left unsaid, the actions we left undid, and such like, and it just makes you wonder where where it makes you wonder about that, doesn't it? It makes you wonder whether as as life rolls on, um, you need to spend a little bit more time thinking about other people and, and where they're going and their significance to you in their lives. I just wonder how much of it, how many of us leave things unsaid that we should have said. I'm just thinking about, maybe I'm thinking about yes. myself at the moment, but um, it's interesting, isn't it? Yes, no, I agree with you. And also one of the things I write about in the book, uh, my mom was a lifelong alcoholic. We did not have a great relationship, Russell. And when she died, I sort of thought, well, it won't be so hard for me because, you know, we didn't have so much together and it was often very painful. Well, the opposite happened because yeah. what you're talking about, that complicated relationship, it was very complicated grief. I had a lot of guilt. I also had a lot of anger and I had to sort of mourn the the loss of the hope that we would have a better relationship. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. What could have been that mm -hmm. thing, isn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. And this. It is a fascinating thing. It's and 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 we do have a tendency, rightly or wrongly, uh, certainly in psychotherapy and psychology, we talk all the time about well, you shouldn't talk about these things. The word shouldn't be a problem there. But actually, it's just opportunity cost. It's that it's that ability to have lost it. But then, if we're not careful, we blame ourselves for never having in mind that possibility. But we never could have done because it never existed, really. But um, yes, there's a sort of a, there's a slight level of fantasy that comes with rewriting the past if we're not careful, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. And I think you know when I was talking about reifying our stories and seeing our stories. You know, when you can see, well, I had this deeply held wish or desire and it was never going to happen and it was a delusion. I think it's still important to mourn it, to say, OK, yeah. well, I know it's not going to happen. And how sad is that? I never had a great relationship with my mom. That is sad. It's OK to feel that. Yeah. And let it go. Yeah. Absolutely. And now before we edge, urge ever more closely to the ed edge of um, <laughs> doing some counselling with you. <laughs> I think we better tell people how to get hold of you and uh, where to find this book because it sounds uh, interesting. Well, um, you can you can get the book on any of at any of the bookstores. Certainly, Amazon and Bookshop has it. I know it's coming out in the UK. I believe it's January one. Already 20, out. Twenty three. It is. Oh, oh how first, great! First of November, it came out. It's already got five star reviews. Okay. Okay. How great! That's wonderful. Um, I, um, you can find me on, uh, at my website, 
meditationwithheart.com. That's meditationwithheart.com. I'm also on the social media. You can find me there. Um, and I have classes and also, you know, there's lots of resources. There's other podcasts and there are um, uh, audio meditations and things like that free. Go, you know, go ahead and check out my website. Brilliant. Fantastic. I will. In fact, I am as we're talking, which is slightly rude of me, but yeah, I couldn't resist just to have a quick look. Um, very good. So um, let me just refresh for everybody. Meditationwithheart.com. And the book is Navigating Grief and Loss, 25 Buddhist Practices to Keep Your Heart Open to Yourself and Others, which is on Amazon.co.uk and .com and probably all the rest as well. So, um, Kimberly, it's been great um, talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. You take care. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.